morning, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well. Just quick, did anybody play double dutch as a kid, just by show of hands? Okay, we have a few. All right, if you've ever played double dutch or seen it played, you know, you got a time jumping in there, right? You know, they got the right? So I've only tried like one time when I was a kid, and I would like mess it up miserably every time. So my timing isn't always perfect, but the Lord's is, and I'm excited about that. And if you didn't hear it already, I want to welcome you to City Church. This is a place where everyone is welcome because no one is perfect. Everyone except for Adam Keziah. <laughs> Anyways. But no, seriously, we, we believe it and we mean it. And even when we forget it, sometimes we're reminded by our very blaring and uh, blatant imperfections, right? So for the last few weeks, we've been covering our values here at City Church. So if you've been visiting us for the last few weeks, you know this. We uh, first covered We Teach the Bible, which was our first value. Then we had the Snow Day. Everybody remember that? Who joined us online? Just show of hands. Awesome. We had the Snow Day. And then we taught our second last week with Todd Sutherland, who preached and uh, he taught, we grow in community. So we teach the Bible, and we grow in community. And today we'll be covering our third, our third value here, which is we love sacrificially. We love sacrificially. And just like the other two, these aren't things that we're just making up out of thin air. They come from Scripture, and that's why we've been preaching through our values. We're not just doing a class. We're preaching through our values and trying to show you that our values are embedded in God's Word. Amen. So I want to show you that today we love sacrificially, not just, not just because it's a good idea or it's, you know, it looks good on a website or attracts more people into our church here, but because it's what God's people are supposed to do, not, not just because of a command or it gets them out of you know, punishment or whatever, or God favors them more, but because it's, it's a response for what God did for us. Amen. All right? And I want to show you that, but before we do that, I want to read a letter to you that's from 117 A.D. 117 A.D. So in 117 A.D., after Christ died, right? So the early church, there's the apostles, they're going and they're spreading the gospel, you know, they're doing all their thing. The church is growing, there's persecution, and there's everything else. The last apostle dies probably early in the second century, John. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. I know this is exciting stuff. This is what you came for. <laughs> Anyways, in 117 AD, Hadrian becomes the emperor of Rome. And Hadrian is not a Christian man, but he's a very religious man. And the, this new emperor of Rome, he becomes kind of weirded out, or he grows anxious about this growing sect or growing cult called the Way. You and I call it Christianity. So he becomes so anxious about it that, that he sends a, a spy into this cult that, uh, to figure out what, what makes the people of God so distinct. What makes the people of God tick? This is what the emperor wants to know because of Christianity's increasing global influence. So here's what the spy writes. And just so you know, this is a very, very long letter. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Um, if you want the link to it, I'd be happy to send it to you. Get with me after this. 
So the spy writes this further. If one or other of them have bondmen or bondwomen, these are slaves or servants, or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in their, into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes away from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their numbers is imprisoned or afflicted on, the name, or on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is something among them, or excuse me, if there is uh, among them anyone that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. So understand what we just read. Here are the people of God, our brothers and sisters in the second century who have been so radically transformed by the love of God displayed in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that their lives are shaking the Roman Empire, so much so that an emperor sends a spy in to find out what makes them tick. And this is what the spy writes. This isn't fiction. This is, this is what I want us to understand today. We love sacrificially because God sacrificially loved us first. Amen. Amen. That's what I want us to understand today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 12. All right, here's what John writes in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you loved us first. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. 
so that we might be forgiven of our sins, the one thing that separates us from you eternally. God, in, in response to that, we love others sacrificially the way that you loved us. God, speak through your word and uh, draw who you will to salvation as they hear of your love and draw the, the believer into a deeper relationship. Let them be reminded of how much you love them in Christ Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so before we get started, we need to understand that there were three words in the Greek-speaking world for love. Three words. The first was eros, and this referred to uh, sexual or erotic love, right? We're just going to go there. We're all adults here, right? And this word, eros, is not used in the New Testament or the Septuagint. Not used. Even though it was very commonly used in Greek literature in its time. The second one is uh, phileo, and this refers to the tender affection to a family member or a friend. I don't know why I'm doing all of this. Just ignore it. The tender affection of a family member or a friend. Now, an easy way to remember phileo is by remembering the city Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. There we go. You guys are master in Greek right here. Look at that. And then the third is agapeo, or its cognate agape. And this refers to the, the uh, special, unconditional love of God. Right, and we see, we see it used in the New Testament interchangeably with uh, phileo to refer to God's love for Jesus, God's love for an individual believer, Jesus' love for his disciples, and um, it's the highest expression of love. Now here in 1 John, from, from verse 7 all the way to uh, chapter 5, verse 3, John words that, uses that word agapeo, or it's cognate agape, over 30 times. So it's important because he's writing to believers, he's writing to other Christians, and he's talking about this kind of love, this special, unconditional love that God has, this highest expression of love that God displays. And he's calling us to love that way. So it's important. And we read the text, right? So let's look at verse 7 together and let's start breaking this down. So loving others gives evidence, at least we see here in verse 7, that we know God and have been born of God. Loving others gives evidence that we have been born of God and know Him, right? Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Very simple point. Very simple point. And then we see Jesus say this to his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So understand what... Jesus is saying that John is reiterating, if you haven't experienced Jesus' love personally, it is impossible or highly unlikely that you will be able to reciprocate that love to anyone else. If I haven't experienced God's love, then how am I going to do or uh, show it to others? Very simple. 
and this new birth. We understand that this is a prerequisite, right? John or um, Nicodemus, when he's talking to Jesus in John 3, Jesus says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this new birth, this regeneration, right, is, it is necessary for a Christian. There is no such thing as a true Christian who is not born again. And we see it in the way that we love because it gives evidence that we are born again, that we truly are Jesus' disciples. Now here's where we need to clarify because somebody here is like, well, you're telling me that non-Christians can't love. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that non-Christians are incapable of loving. Why am I saying that? Because sometimes they love way better than we do as the body of Christ. That's true, right? It's true. We know it is. It's an unfortunate reality. But it's true. And, and here's what Howard Marshall writes. He says, Human love, however noble and however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father and the Son as its supreme objects of its affections. Right, because it fails to honor the golden rule, which is in Matthew 22, 34, and 40, when Jesus is asked, Teacher, Rabbi, which are the most important uh, commandments? Which is the greatest, right? And I almost tripped. Don't mind. Starting in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him and said this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? There it is. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. So loving God with, with our, all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind is the, the first and the greatest. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then we know the, the, the follow-up question, who's my neighbor? And we, and we like kind of scoff and turn our noses up when we read it in the text or when it's preached here in church. But that's the same thing that we do when we leave here. Who's our neighbor? We just walk by people carelessly. We ignore them. It's just the reality. I'm not saying that non-Christians can't love. I'm just saying that it's not the kind of love that God is calling us to. The, the kind of love that says, I've experienced the, the gracious and fullness of God's love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now it propels me not to say, who is my neighbor? But like Jared said a few weeks ago, actually months ago, it, it propels me to be a neighbor. And we understand that from this text, love originates in God. All right, look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Our love originates in God because God is love. Love is his very nature, and acting in love is it's essential to his very character. Right? So John Piper says it this way, the way heat is from a fire or the way light is from the sun. The fire is, is uh, heat. Or you get heat from a fire because fire is heat. You get 
I know, I was thinking you should say hot too, but that's not the way that he says it. Bear with me. And you get light from the Son because the Son is light. You get love from the Father because the Father is love. So acting in love is essential to his very character. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But look at, look at what we do. This is what John is saying, right? We should be this because God is love. We should love because God is love. And then he points us in verses 9 and 10. He answers the question, how do we know? How do we know that God is love? Look at verse 9 with me. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do we understand what John is doing here? How do we know that God is love? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. How do we know that God is love? I think God hates me. Look to the cross. You don't need to look anywhere else. You don't need any more posts or any more inspirational things. Look to the cross. Nowhere else. How do you know that God is love? Jesus died for your sins. The one thing that eternally separates you from a, a relationship with the Father. Do, when we understand our condition without Jesus, we'll appreciate this, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you're all. That should be all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All have sinned. The wages of sin or payments or consequences of is death, eternal separation from God, Romans 6, 23. But we have eternal life. It's a free gift, Paul says, in Christ Jesus our Lord. But remember, Jesus came to be the propitiation. And that word propitiation, you want to underline it. Um, it just means an offering or an atoning sacrifice that turns away God's wrath, right? So God's wrath is directed at sin. This offering or atoning sacrifice turns away God's wrath from our sin. Or if you want to understand it this way, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we couldn't die or should have died in our place so that God would receive us not on our account, but on his account. So how do we know that God is love? We look to the cross. And this love, it, it causes us to love others. Look, at it naturally for, uh, flows into verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God did all of this, right, he says this is what we should do because God is this. Look to the cross and this is the way that we should live if God loved us this much. If he's done this for us, we, this should be the natural response for the person who has experienced God's love. Our love finds its beginning in God's love and it overflows, it, it overflows in loving words and actions towards others. So in, in Luke 7, 
36 through 50. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I think we may be familiar with this story. There's a, uh, a Pharisee that invites Jesus to eat dinner with him. Jesus is reclining at the table. When a woman of the city, woman of the city, then they classify a sinner afterwards. It's like, we, we get what you're saying. When she finds out, she comes in. She just comes in, invites herself to this dinner party, standing behind Jesus at his feet, starts bawling her eyes out and starts crying and washing his feet with her tears and then drying it with her hair and then anoints them with the oil that she brought with her. And if you know anything about the oil, this isn't the sermon, but it was expensive for a reason. Right, so the Pharisee that invites him over, he, he looks over at the woman and he's like, he says to himself, this is what the Bible says, he says to himself that if, if, this, if this man were a prophet and he knew who was touching him, like, he wouldn't let her touch him. Like, this woman's a sinner. She's defiling him. If this man was a prophet, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus perceives this, right? He, he knows it because he's God in the flesh. And he, and he says, right, he's reclining at the table. This would probably be the scariest thing if I was eating dinner with Jesus. He's like, Simon, I have something to say to you. See that woman? From the moment I walked into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't, um, you didn't give me a kiss. And you didn't uh, anoint my head with oil. But this woman hasn't stopped. Like, like she, as soon as she came in, she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And then she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since the time that I came. And she has anointed my feet with oil that she brought. Like this, this woman, this woman has done, she's gone above and beyond and, and just loved me uh, as a response to, to what, who I am and what I've done. And, and he, before that, he offers a parable, right? He says there are two debtors. One owes a huge debt and one owes a small debt. And a moneylender forgives both of them because they're unable to pay. Which one do you think will love the moneylender more? Simon answers, well, of course, it's the one who owes the bigger debt. Right? That's pretty common. The one who owes the bigger debt is the one who's going to uh, love the money lender more. Jesus says that he's right. right. But this woman, this woman understood that she had a big debt. Look at, what he, look at what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, of course, here we get the ruckus, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. When you have experienced the forgiveness of your sins in Christ Jesus, how could it not flow out in love, in loving words and actions towards others? How, how, could it, how could it not? Right, this, this lady, this woman of the city who was a sinner, the Bible says, how could it not flow, overflow? Her sins were many. Like, 
Like, this is what happens. This was her response. This is our response if we understand our condition without Jesus. We didn't, like, this isn't a, a, I've sinned a little or I sinned a lot competition. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to say is that all are sinners and, and that the wages of sin, not sins, sin is death, eternal separation. And if that's all of us in this room, our sin debt was so great that we should have nothing but appreciation for Jesus, what God's done for us in Jesus. So we get bored with the gospel and our love towards others grows cold when we forget our condition without Jesus. Anybody ever been bored with the gospel? Just be real. It happens, right? Anybody ever not loved others the right way? It happens. But if we're not loving others as we should, then we don't understand God. We don't understand God's love as we should. If we're not loving others as we should, we don't understand God's love as we should. And this is what John writes in uh, later in the chapter. He writes this in verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. And this commandment we have from him, for whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right. Do you hear what he's saying? How are you going to say that you love God when you hate your brother? How are you going to hate the person that you have seen but love the one that you haven't seen? It's common, like it's common sense, we get it, but we've done such a great job at twisting this in our day. But we're saying here that we value sacrificial love as a response to what God has done for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're saying that we understand, we prioritize, that we hold dear the way that we love others and live like Christ in this city and in this world. Then in verse 12, he says that our love uh, for others brings his love to perfection. And here we can go off on a rabbit trail, but I think, you know, we all might want to make it uh, to work on Monday, so we're not going to get too deep into the weeds. Um, but the, the, the word here, if we read in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That word seen in the Greek, it's where we get the word theater from. And it means to speculate closely or to observe at a, at a very close proximity. And no one has ever seen God in this way. No one has ever seen God in his unveiled essence, right? In his complete glory and majesty, up close, in his face. Now, I know what you're thinking, and we'll get there. So, in uh, Exodus 30, uh, sorry, Exodus 33, 20, we see that if a person was to see God in this way, unveiled majesty, right? Unveiled holiness, like full on, they would die. Exodus 33, 20. So we know that Moses at Mount Sinai and then Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah 6, they saw theophanies, which are visions or revelations of God. Now Paul explains that, that God dwells in an unapproachable light in uh, 1 Timothy 6, 16. Unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him in the fullness of his holiness. So we as his sinful creatures, we need Jesus as our mediator to 
who was fully man and fully God, uh, to be that mediator so that we can see God in holiness, which we cannot see in this life because we are marked by sin. Now, that was the simplest way that I can explain that. But John writes this in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In heaven, we shall see him as he is, full unveiled holiness, but we cannot in this life. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't fully man and fully God. I'm not saying that. Neither is John. I'm saying that he mediates that. So don't let me sidetrack you. This is God's, or, uh, John's point, that we can see God, we can see God and see God's love through the actions of his children, through the way that we love one another. That's John's point here, not that no one has ever seen God. So don't let me sidetrack you. John Stott writes this, mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who has once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. So mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who has once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. So if we were going to summarize verses 7 through 12, it would be like this. Love originated in God, it was manifested in his son, and now it is, uh, it's now carried out by his church or his children. So it originates in God, manifested in his son, carried out by his children. So as we come to a close, I want to read something to you. The, the great and challenging application is that we must go to those who don't want us there. We must share a gospel they don't want to hear, and we must love those who may hate and even want to kill us in return. Because we are connected to Jesus through the new birth, we must go and live like Jesus among our friends and our enemies. So let me, because I have a few minutes, let me just share my heart transparently. I read a, a survey the other day, and it said that 85% of people come to know Jesus in saving faith through their friends and family and coworkers, like through their personal relationships. Not through me, not through Malachi, not through the small group leaders, but through their friends and their family members. So this is what I'm saying, church, is that some of us, we wanna love like Jesus, and we do, we meet all of the physical needs that we can, we listen as much as we can, we provide whatever we can, but we never get to the gospel. We never get to the gospel. And if we understand our condition without Jesus, we understand that a, a person who is thirsty in this life is better than somebody who's thirsty in the next. So if I'm going to give you water, I better give you the gospel too. I better quench your, your, your physical thirst and your spiritual thirst. So we got to get there. If we're going to say that we love people, we have to do more than just the physical. And, and this is what kills me. This is what kills me. And I really kind of wrestle with this. 
God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but receive eternal life, right? John 3, 16, everybody knows this verse. He so loves the world that he graciously extended his love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that you could have a relationship with him for eternity. But there are people every day who reject his offer, his eternal love offer in Jesus. They reject it and they die without being saved. And this is how much God loves them, that he'll respect their decision for eternity. Let that sink in. Like, I love my kids. Right? I love my kids. And if I see them approaching the edge of the cliff, that's going to determine my level of escalation to get them away from the cliff. But God is saying this, I love you so much, I'll watch you walk off the cliff if you choose to. It blows my mind. Blows my mind. Because 2 Peter 3.9 says that he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it must break his heart whenever somebody doesn't know him, when somebody dies without receiving that free gift of salvation. It breaks my heart. And I know that it breaks the Father's because his word says so. 85% receive the gospel through their friends, family members, co-workers. Not through the church staff not through the small group leaders, not through the pastor, preacher, Bible teacher, you. They are in your circle so that you can share the gospel with them. And if we are truly born again, it should be a natural response to meet those needs, to, to go to those places, to listen to those people, whoever they are in your life, and just as a way to get the gospel in. So why do we love sacrificially? I need everybody to open their Bibles if they've closed them and to look at verse 19. 1 John 4, 19. Why do we love sacrificially? Open your Bibles. Why do we love sacrificially? Well, John says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. It's that simple. He loved us first in Christ Jesus, so it's the natural response to love others. So that's why we value sacrificial love here, because we have been so radically transformed by God's love in Jesus' death and resurrection that we want others to experience this. Let's pray. Father God, to say that we're thankful isn't enough. When we realize that without Jesus, we had no way, no way to be forgiven by you, that our works weren't good enough, that our our good deeds weren't good enough, that our, our efforts weren't good enough, like nothing was good enough. They were filthy rags, your word says. But you sent your son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to be the propitiation, the offering, the atoning sacrifice so that we might have a relationship with you. And Lord, we're, we are just thankful that you loved us first 
So I pray that in this body that we would continue to love others the same way that you loved us, that we would meet them where they are with the good news. Yes, I pray that we would continue to meet physical needs, but I pray that they would only be a, a, a bridge to the gospel and that you would burden us with people in our circles who need to hear the gospel. I pray that you would make us more than just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as a loving response to the love that you showed us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.